metrics and where we are behind. We are usually also know quite well what the ingredients for innovation are. We're talking about talent and infrastructure and regulation and, and all those things. And we need to improve on all of them. And then, of course, we have the digital single market. But if we now fast forward, say, 10 years, 20 years, whatever, assume we have perfectly succeeded on our most ambitious goals on the digital single market, assume we have perfectly made progress faster than in the past on all the things of VC capital and infrastructure and 5G and, and other things we're also discussing later today, will that be enough? Would that put Europe into a leadership position vis-a-vis -vis the US and China? And I think the answer is relatively clearly no. And uh, the, the reason for, for that is essentially very similar to, to, to what Ryan Hilde said. Um, the increasing economies of scale in some way. So what, what we did is uh, we looked at 6,000 greater $1 billion firms globally and analyzed who actually creates economic profit. So profit beyond the cost of capital. And it's essentially the top 10%. Everyone else doesn't. This is an incredible concentration, about 80% of economic profit being concentrated in just 10% of firms, and that is among the sample of every one of those already above a billion dollar. We are not even talking about the long trail of fragmented SMEs that Europe always gets, that gets, gets obsessed with. We're just talking about the large ones. And these actually matter for innovation and, and, and digital even more so than otherwise. So if you look at these, this sample of companies, you see the median firm in those large, in that large sample of large companies spends about 3.4% of revenue on R&D. Those top firms spend 9.9%, almost three, three times as much. And that is also reflected in the concentration in R&D spend that Reinildo already showed, just 250 firms making up about two-thirds of all of global R&D spend. So great that we are getting obsessed with all those support for nice, small, little startups and SMEs, and we all like them. How much do they matter? Well, a lot. A third. Two-thirds are playing somewhere else. Now, unfortunately, as we all know, Europe doesn't have many of those. It used to have a bit about a third of those superstars 20 years ago. It has 16% of those superstars globally now. A strongly declining trajectory. So we seem to be unable to produce the firms that succeed at scale and are the drivers of, of the big new innovations to come. Now, where, where, does that, where does that keep us? What can we do? So apparently we can't go on as we have been going so far. So we need to think about other ways how we can maybe change the rules of the game. Rather than always catching up on all the things where we know we are behind, is there things we can, can do differently? And just putting up a few more like ideas or questions rather than being misinterpreted as, as, as kind of any definitive answers. But a few ingredients that might get into that. On the one hand, Maybe we can play much more on Europe's existing industrial strength. So we have few superstars, but we also don't have zero. Some of the European automotive and pharma firms, for instance, are out there in the top. Still, how much longer? That is a question. Where is the huge push to e-mobility and autonomous driving in Europe? We definitely have the players who can win. 
There's no excuse to say we don't have the scale or anything. We actually do. But what can we make, do to make that more successful? Could we or should we have created much more certainty, for instance, around emissions to really get an edge in e-mobility rather than waiting for China to move ahead? Can we do much more on autonomous vehicles? Should we have, say, as at EU level, three pilot cities where public transport is being replaced by autonomous vehicles? Let's start next year. Just a few ideas. Don't have all the answers, but also maybe one, one thing that I also think is important and that sometimes gets forgotten. What else do we do about the single markets? We like talking about the digital single market and 5G standards and so on. That's all nice. I would argue much more important is the good old single market and services. How can European banks be the digital innovation leaders if none of them exceeds about 20% of the size of JP Morgan? It's not going to happen. So another point then might be, can we change some of those scale dynamics? We know some of that scale is linked to R&D. Some of the scale, however, is also linked to data, where the value of data actually increases and multiplies, kind of increases exponentially probably with, with the amount of data you have. Most of those European players don't have it. Um, but we have industries where those network effects also played a role, telecoms notably, and we have come up with all kinds of access regulation to actually allow smaller players to compete and create a bit of dynamic in that otherwise previously monopoly sector. Could that be a template for digital? I think it's a dangerous move, so let's, let's proceed with care, but at least maybe we could start up with public data huh? before we think about regulating private companies, which is a dangerous thing to do. Maybe at least we can open up government data and make sure everyone can compete and innovate on that. Then there is actually the public sector, which is pretty large in Europe, which is usually considered a bureaucratic disadvantage, but it's actually a scale advantage if we use it properly. Um, let me give you one example in construction, maybe a very unlikely industry for digital innovation, but it's actually, it's a very behind sector in so many ways, and because it's so behind, it's also one where now a couple of players are moving very strongly into industrialized forms of modular construction with very heavy digital front ends, customization from the digital front end, what the user wants back into the um, um, uh, IoT-based factory. And Europe actually has pretty strong construction players. It has a lot of the building materials players. It has a lot of the digital innovators in that sector. But the one billion softback funding goes to Catera on the west coast of the US. Uh, there's companies like Red Urban and so on, on the one hand because they just have the ambition, on the other hand also because these players have realized Marriott wants like 6,000 new hotels over the next few years and needs them modular because they don't they're not fast enough if they do it differently. So it's again this kind of scale of demand question that matters a lot here. But Europe has tons of public works. Can't we use that? Can't we make it mandatory that it is delivered in a different way by the most innovative players? Then skills have been proven to be the biggest barrier to more intangible investment and, and R&D. I think that comes out in all kinds of surveys uh, also by colleagues from ERB. Um, can we actually benefit from the current political environment? I think Europe is a pretty attractive place these days. So can we play on that? 
And if we, are in the end, conclude there's areas where we can't win, and I, th I would argue the consumer internet by now is probably a lost battle, so let's not worry about it. Let's more worry then about how can we get the footprint of those global firms that are out there to, to the best value in Europe. Should we have discussions rather than about taxing by usage and trying to get a few more dollars into our fiscal budgets, to rather think about how we can get another 100,000 R&D jobs into research campuses in Europe? Thank you. Thanks, uh, Jan. Those are really great uh, insights uh, here. First of all, uh, discussing the digital single market, that that's not enough. But then actually extending the discussion on, on let's focus on those areas where we're strong and see whether we can actually, with the help of new technologies, but that's very often the adoption of digital technologies, that will matter a lot here. Um, you, you gave the examples of automotive, pharma, but also business services here. And then particularly, like for instance, in automotive, this importance of also making sure we have a single market, uh, that's our strength here, but also a single public market, public procurement is an important uh, instrument. So definitely, I think you gave already a lot of uh, hints in in terms of where we should be going for industrial policy here. So, good start for the discussion here. But before we open the discussion, we still have some other uh, speakers here. So, next um, speaker will be Philippe uh, Brutcher. He's an economist at the uh, European Investment Bank. Um, he's been working particularly on the e EIB Investment Survey, which is a really large-scale uh, survey uh, across all corporates uh, in, in Europe here. And they focus a lot on investment uh, decisions and, and barriers and incentives uh, here, and also including digital uh, investments uh, here. So lots of insights from uh, from that survey to be gained here. Um, so the floor is yours, uh, Philippe, to share with us these insights. Thank you very much, uh, Ryan Hilde. First of all, thank you very much for having me. I'm really delighted to be here. Um, so Ryan Hilde at the beginning asked a few questions, and Jan came to the answer that uh, the answer should really be yes. So since we're supposed to have a discussion, I'll just say no. Um, and let me tell you why. So I didn't bring any slides, but um, if I had to put up sort of a motivating slide, um, I can tell you what it would be and also what it wouldn't be. What I think it wouldn't be, um, just for the sake of the argument, it wouldn't be a slide that shows you, you know, the largest firms in terms of stock market capitalization, um, which would highlight very nicely that uh, in recent years this have been become increasingly tech giants and that these tech giants are all located in the US and uh, increasingly also in China, but not in Europe. And the reason I wouldn't put up this slide is because I'm not entirely sure I would buy into the premise that is underlying sort of um, um, the, the slide or why many people put it up, which is that somehow digitalization has fundamentally changed the rules of the game, right? The reason we see these tech giants there in such a short period of time is because we now live in a winner-takes-all period. Right? That's it. That's why they've managed to rise so quickly and to establish themselves. And this is also why we supposedly have to be so concerned that there are no European firms among these two. Top firms. And that sounds really appealing. And then, of course, this is just anecdotal evidence, but then people would go on in economic circles and then quote other things like, okay, we are seeing increasing 
um, concentration of marker, right, which perfectly fits the story of winner takes all. So there are more and more, or fewer and fewer firms that manage to accumulate more and more economic rents. Uh, profit concentration also increases. We see the labor share fall, which supposedly is just the mirror image of a strong market position in the product and services sector. That you know, in the in the factor market, so you become a monopsony uh, uh, as a consequence of your monopoly position, and of course also rising inequality. Now, what's wrong with this story? Well, it's not that I know it's wrong, but it's just something to bear in mind before jumping jumping to conclusions. The first one is that a lot of these mega macro trends that I was just citing, they really come from the US. Right? If you look at US data, you do see all of these things. You see the increase in markups, you see the increase in, in, in profit concentration, you see the fall in, in labor shares, the rise in inequality. If you start looking or seeking for this data in Europe, it's not that clear, really. The, the increase in, in markups, if you look at Central and Eastern Europe, you see the exact opposite. Uh, over the past 20 years, we have seen massive declines in, in markups. In, in other sectors, yes, you do see some increases, but I would say they're not so dr dramatic. The same is true for falling labor shares. You don't see them to the same extent in Europe or at all. Of course, you always have to be careful what time horizon you look at. I mean, in Germany, you should take into account that there was such a thing as German reunification that boosted wages at one point that had to be adjusted. So clearly, if you take the wrong time horizon, you see a decline. But this is actually just a normalization to um, some inflation at a, at a different moment in, 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 in time. So. Um, from that perspective, um, I, I would sort of first caution the, the use of the data and this, this assumption that what we see in the US we can translate to Europe. And of course, I would also use that fact, I mean, in fact, it was Thomas Philippon who, who made that point first. So really, if we see these trends in the US so strongly, but we don't see it in Europe, um, and clearly in Europe we use the same technologies, right? There are sectors, you can be as pessimistic as you want to be about Europe, but there are sectors that are arguably more advanced in terms of digitalization in Europe than in the US. But still, if we don't see the same trends in, in the US, are we really sure that what we are seeing in the US is simply driven by winner-takes-all tendencies? Or is it possible that something else is actually happening? And his argument was, well, maybe the US just simply dropped the ball on their antitrust policies in, in, in the past, and that Europe did much, much better in this respect. And maybe we should be careful, um, you know, drawing the wrong conclusions from this kind of episode. Um, something similar could actually also be said about superstar firms. If you look at the growth contribution of the biggest firms, of course, they've always contributed massively to economic growth. But if you look at the time horizon, even in the US, the contribution has actually declined in recent years rather than increased. And also, we have to be clear, what are the superstar firms? Is it just size or is it productivity in markups? If it's the latter, they are not super big. The, the firms with the highest markups, the highest productivity, have an average sales of 50 million per year. Right? This is not your tech giants. So again, we have to be just very careful before we jump to the conclusion, oh la la, we are falling behind in terms of the world, and it's the giants that are going to save us, so Europe needs to jump on that train. Okay, I'm saying that very provocatively. I, I, Yes, um, let's, let's take it as a, as a you know, stimulus for discussion. So if this is not the first chart that I would put up, if I had to put up a chart, what would be my first chart? What would I think is a possibly you know, better founded starter for a discussion about economic policy and digitalization in Europe? And uh, the chart that I would put up 
is probably a relatively boring chart because you've seen it all a million times. It's a chart uh, that the OECD has put up as one of the first ones and they deserve a lot of credit for this, which is the, the divergence of productivity performance of the frontier firms and, and the rest of the firms, right? And that chart is really interesting. So you see that the, the top productivity firms, they've just hammered away in terms of productivity performance and the rest sort of stagnated. And that's really a fascinating chart because it, it has a positive and negative uh, message. The positive image is so all those that are technological pessimists, right, that, who think that the recent stagnation and aggregate productivity has to do that we don't have any ideas what to do anymore. Well, clearly our top performers, they know how to continue doing their business and to become ever better in their business. So that doesn't seem to be really the issue. Um, the negative news is that the rest of the companies seem to have lost the capability to keep up with them, right? Um, and then here, really, policy needs to ask, why is this? Um, and now I'm running out of time, and I'm, maybe we can get to this later. Um, I think there are four major areas um, that there's a question of capabilities, and I would agree to a large extent also what uh, Jan said about how, how, how we should make sure that the firms have the capacity to actually adopt to new digital technologies. There's an important question about incentives, and this is where competition policy comes in. I said that Europe did much better in terms of competition policy possibly than the US did, but still even here you have sort of a few smoking guns signaling that we might want to uh, be even more careful than, than we've been with uh, declining business dynamics, uh, um, predatory patenting behavior, mergers and acquisitions behavior, and, and, and so on. It, more generally, I would say that, you know, people always try to show this Aguillon-type inverted U relationship. More competition is good for innovation, but be careful, you also, you're, you're, you're also may overdo it uh, at one point. And, and my point would be, I think we are way on the left-hand side. This is something we really shouldn't worry about. We should make sure that we, that we create an environment where we have new young firms having the capacity to enter the market and challenge the established firms rather than protecting the established firms in the hope that they will save us uh, from the competition from elsewhere. And then there's, of course, uh, complementary assets, and I totally agree with, with Jan of the role of the government sector, infrastructure, data. And finally, and that's just as a prelude for later panels, I think any industri industrial policy should go in hand also with social policy, because clearly the digital uh, revolution, or whatever you want to call it, will have an impact on you know, the role of work and, 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 and labor and so on. And it's not just good social policy, but it is also good economic policy to make sure that we create an environment where people feel safe to uh, pursue new, new technologies. And I'll stop here. Yeah. Thanks, uh, Philippe, and uh, thanks also for being willing to take a more uh, opposite <laughs> side on, on the spectrum here. But you've heard also a lot of, of, of uh, discussions and elements that Philip raised are very much in line also with uh, um, because indeed trying to understand this divergence between the, the, the leaders and the laggards is an important uh, issue here. The question is, where is Europe? Is it much more in the laggards part than in the, in the really top uh, one here? Also, the elements that you identified, like the capabilities, the incentives, complementary assets, uh, are very important. Social policy, I think, is also an important dimension. We may have uh, uh, not yet addressed so much uh, here. It's also related to your uh, uh, labor market and, and uh, wages, 
uh, divergence uh, here. I'm sure that also our next speaker, Martin uh, Kams, uh, will be addressing here. He's the sec Secretary General at the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Climate Policy in the Netherlands. Um, he was also the chairman of the European High Level Group for Competitiveness and Growth here, so he has been definitely also working on these issues here, but he also has a history in, in employment and, and social affairs uh, here. So I'm sure he, he will also be um, addressing these issues. Uh, floor is yours, Martin. Thank you very much. Um, uh, let me uh, try to be in the middle. <laughs> Let's say yes, but. Um, and I think it's good to start uh, on a positive note, um, because I think um, everything that has been shown on the slides on developments in Europe vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world is true. Of course, these are the facts. But at the same time, I think we can be uh, self-confident. Um, the European economy is uh, still among uh, the strongest economies in the world. Um, and we have our single market, uh, which is a key driver for growth, which has, with its strong competition law, um, uh, delivered innovative and competitive industries and uh, a high living standard uh, for, uh, for the people in Europe. So I think uh, it's good to, to start with that because that's the basis on which we develop our uh, economic policy and it's the basis of our economy and our system. Um, and uh, at the same time, uh, we cannot sit back. Uh, we know, uh, and that also has been shown, that other economies are evolving, <coughs> uh, the US and China in particular, uh, European firms are becoming more uh, relatively smaller in relative terms, getting smaller in uh, relative to other companies in the world. And we are um, uh, in danger of becoming more dependent for our technologies on other uh, parts of the world than, we, than instead of that we develop these technologies here in Europe. And of course, the, the winner takes all um, elements of the new digital industri industri industrial uh, development is fuel fueling these differences, this dichotomy in, in, in development within the world. So this puts the question on the table um, about our competitiveness, our innovative strength, and our earning capacity. So how can we catch up? Um, and there's no, uh, no easy answer here, and I would say there's uh, we, we should, in, in, within Europe, develop two strategies. Uh, one is that uh, we need stronger common policies uh, to enhance the EU's competitiveness. That's where the, the single market comes, comes into place. I'll get back to that. And we need a level playing field, a better level playing field, for European businesses inside and outside the EU. Um, we, uh, again, the single market is an important basis for our economy, uh, uh, and we have to build on that for the, for the future. But we also have to look at our economic values, uh, values that urge us to keep our markets open, that urge us to stay competitive, and we should build on these values um, to uh, stay comprehensive, uh, to have a comprehensive and forward-looking economic uh, agenda an agenda that facilitates transition to this digital economy. And in fact, I'm also from the Ministry of Climate Policy, also to a more sustainable economy. 
Um, we need to reinforce the single market, and maybe we should actually double our uh, our efforts to make it stronger and make it more competitive and let it work better. And services is one of the examples there, where we have a lot of work to do. And I think in the digital single market, we have a lot of lots to do as well. And European companies should be able to um, to scale up quickly uh, and to scale up quickly in the digital economy as well. And the modern European industrial agenda. Is, should be a part of this economic uh, economic agenda. Uh, public and private sector should invest more, uh, more in R&D, uh, to facilitate these transitions, to support societal challenges that we see. Uh, and uh, it's uh, I'm pleased that the the Horizon Europe program also in the multi financial framework for the next period. Uh, is doing a lot of good work and is uh, getting bigger probably than it is at this today. Uh, and this invests in our European common technology base. Now, given this digital, digital transition, we should not just focus on the traditional industries, we should focus also on um, uh, digital technologies which may deliver products and services to, to our uh, consumers. And one of the in interesting elements there, and that's where the old and the new industries come together, which is data. Um, uh, making the most of big data uh, uh, and artificial intelligence is essential for actually all businesses. And our industrial strategies must therefore enable companies to create most value of data. And at the same time, citizens should stay in control uh, of their data and the GDPR sets actually uh, a standard there which is now becoming more and more not just a European standard but a world standard which is an example of how also from Europe we can set the rules in the world. Um, and I think it's important that we support our companies to share their data voluntarily uh, and sometimes we should even compel them to do so. Uh, it could help uh, to progress innovation uh, and it uh, avoids uh, the use, uh, the, the development of contestable market power. Uh, and it's good to see that uh, the European Commission is now uh, successfully regulating uh, some of the market powers, like Google this week, what we've seen. Um, yet this is not the same same argument. This is this does not mean we need. Uh, by definition, uh, a European Google or a European uh, superpower. We should at least we should not pick them from government side. It's important they, they may evolve. It would be excellent if we would have more uh, more champions, but we must be must create the environment where these champions can uh, can grow uh, from startups, from existing companies. Uh, from open and competitive uh, markets, from investments in R&D. So that's one one issue: uh, how that, that we need common policies uh, to strengthen our competitiveness in, in Europe. The second element is a better level playing field for businesses inside and outside Europe. Well, inside Europe, it's a single market that should provide them the level playing field. Outside uh, Europe, uh, it's a different story. Sometimes it seems that in the global economy uh, we are playing, uh, from Europe, uh, an entirely different game than others are playing. We seem to be playing football where they are playing rugby or whatever 
game you, you, want, to, you want to think of. So uh, there, uh, entirely different rules uh, may apply. Um, I would think that our uh, single market should be open to foreign investment uh, and at the same time uh, um, must maintain strict rules on competition and on state aid. But when this is less so in other markets, uh, when foreign states heavily support their own companies, directly or indirectly, uh, then we see that uh, in uh, this other playing field, uh, there is, it, is not, uh, it is not leveled. And this is to the detriment of European firms. So uh, that is why we need to use the economic power and the economic strength of Europe uh, and ensure that all parties play the same game. And I'm happy to see that this is the kind of view that is getting more widespread. This week, the European uh, Political Strategy Center also has made a paper which delivered a similar, similar message. And it means that from Europe, we need to uh, reform the WTO. Uh, we should explore whether additional measures are necessary, if not from the WTO, then from the EU itself to address unfair competition from third countries more effectively, uh, for example, by applying uh, stricter rules to, uh, to public procurement. Um, now, if we, want to, uh, if we want to compete and if we want to succeed, we need to cooperate within the EU and we need to be streetwise outside the EU. Uh, and this also applies to uh, security issues, uh, if you talk about foreign direct investments, 5G has been mentioned already, uh, where a coordinated common European approach would be very helpful. So we have the single market, which is an open market, uh, and uh, it has delivered great results for all our citizens, and we should value this basis of our economy and build on that, force others to play by the rules, and if they don't, see what rules apply there, and then apply, play by these different rules in other areas outside the EU. Thank you. Thanks, Martin. That's really a very balanced uh, view that you, you try to bring, uh, which I think is really important uh, to move forward. Um, I like also the notions of uh, putting the single market really very pivotal in the whole discussion uh, here. Um, also, both in all the new industries is importance of data and access to data and actually having a single market for, for data uh, here, where, uh, again, also public data would be a very important single uh, market uh, objective here. And then, of course, also this, this careful trading of, of openness, but then also respecting uh, level playing field uh, type of arguments with making sure uh, that we have uh, everybody sticking to, to the rules uh, here as well. So you definitely bring a lot of uh, good uh, views to the discussion here. I already see others willing to respond to that, but we first have a, a last uh, intervention by uh, <coughs> Professor, <coughs> sorry, Professor uh, Padmashri Sampat. She's a leading expert uh, on trade policy, innovation policy, and economic development. So she <coughs> sorry, really combines a lot of different uh, issues that we have been discussing here. She uh, worked, among others, at the United Nations uh, UNU Merit for several years, has been consulting a lot of uh, countries and international organizations on how to design and implement uh, 
industrial policies and innovation uh, policies uh, here. And she currently focuses on social and developmental implications of technological change with a particular emphasis on digital. So again, I think uh, you can bring very uh, useful uh, views from your experience uh, to the discussion uh, here. But Mashri, the floor is yours. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you, Reinhelde. Um, I need actually. How do I change the slides? Thank you, um, and good morning to everybody. Um, the the left has been taken, the right has been taken, the center has been taken. So um, I'll try to have the last word on it. <laughs> so um, um, I I just want to um, in 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 the ten minutes that I have, what I want to do is sort of give you a. Um, uh, an overview of the landscape and the platform economy right now from a global perspective, really looking at the scene of how it looks like in the US and, and China, particularly, and try to compare that to, to what's going on in Europe. Now, um, if you see basically what's going on to innovation in the platform economy, and by the platform economy, I mean the new digitized economy, data economy, however you want to call it, it's not really based, if you see what's going on elsewhere, it's not really based on creating new knowledge per se, but a combination of new knowledge and new market capture situations, right? So I want to break up what's really going on and identify four different models. The first one is that you have firms that are operating at the technological frontier in the digital economy. Good examples are firms like Microsoft Azure, which provide cloud computing services, for instance, but you have similar stuff across the frontier. Or you have Jupyter Notebooks for machine learning. Then you have a second kind of firms that capture value through new business models. These are basically firms in the gig economy, as we call it. And these firms are like Uber or Lyft. What they do is that they try to provide services in a niche which was previously not captured. And through that, they create actually new kind of business and value. Then you have a third kind of firms which expand and serve markets through online services. These are firms like Amazon. These firms, what they do is that they use actually online platforms to give the same kind of services that they used to give without the online platforms. And this is different from, from gig economy firms like Uber because Uber doesn't have any investment. It doesn't own any cars. It runs somebody else's cars, somebody else's services. It just brings people together. Whereas Amazon, it has its own delivery services. It has its own kind of transportation, storage, and, and it takes responsibility. Then you have a fourth kind of uh, firms. These are basically social media and networking firms, right? Now, what is happening to this nature of innovation? Everybody says it's creating inequality. Why? Now, it's creating inequality because, as the first speaker said, it's actually leading to takes-all dynamics in the top tier, where you see firms operating at the technological frontier. But it's also creating inequality because there are other kinds of things happening underneath. One is it's data-driven, clear. Right, But there's also a certain advantage to being a first mover here. So the first mover collects the maximum number of or amount of data. And these first mover advantages and data-driven advantages, they not necessarily work together, but they usually work together. And that makes it really difficult. But also what's really important here is that all kinds of new technologies that we talk about in the platform uh, um, economy, like, say, Internet of Things or cyber-physical systems, when you talk about artificial intelligence, 
automations or you talk about robotics and process automation, they all build on data in very nonlinear ways. So they are mutually reinforcing. You have a lot of data, then you can build IoT system. IoT systems help you to get more data to feed into big data sets to create artificial intelligence innovations, and that helps you to get to the next domain, right? So what happens here is that the value creation and capture, so I call it platformerization, which is basically a new kind of way of doing business, where value creation and capture is not geographically constrained, and therefore it can have impact on local companies anywhere in the world. It entails practices that shift costs, because the important thing in your business model is not just to create the next great innovation, is to be able to sell it using online platforms, and for that you need to get as many people people hooked on, to on your online platform uh, more than someone else. And that means that you're not going to create products which have costs, but you're shifting these costs either to consumers or to someone else with low or li little regulatory oversight. This is what's happening actually outside of the EU. So, and data's impact on competition and innovation is linked to broader trends. Some of the people have, who have spoken before me have <laughs> talked about it. I don't agree that all of these winner-take-all advantages are linked to productivity. We can go deeper into that. Actually, we have work, which I'm doing with colleagues, which shows that you need to break that down depending on the kinds of firms you're looking at in the platform economy. If you look at typical manufacturing R&D intensive firms, that can be linked to productivity, but not necessarily always. But data ownership clearly distorts the emergence of competitive rents, and this is where EU and the position it is taking on competition policy becomes very, very useful and important. And then the important thing in platformerization that we miss out, and I think this is where it becomes relevant for the European Union, is that as you get more and more automatized, what you see is that these technologies, cyber-physical systems or artificial intelligence and, uh, and process automation, they replace and create new kinds of um, innovations in traditional sectors. And in those sectors, if data concentration is in the hands of a few companies, then you lose even existing advantages in those sectors to new entr entrants. And there is a reorganization of rents. I'll give you an example here. This is what I applied to machine learning when you compare it to the internet as originally conceived. A lot of people will tell you, looking at the ICTs, that the internet is an open system, it's decentralized, the whole thing is not about ownership or control. Machine learning today turns it upside down. What does it do? The most important internet as it was conceived, hardware was the largest part. You had data linked networks, infrastructure, then applications. They were supposed to be the most minute part of the internet. Today, in machine learning, the hardware is the, is the smallest part. What you have is software that builds on it, machine learning applications that build on it, and they are the maximum of what is happening in that area, in machine learning and, and deep learning and AI. And what does this do to the internet? It actually privatizes the internet, because all of the stuff that we see building on the hardware, they're owned and they're privatized. And the same thing, same kind of work is being done by colleagues in, in cyber-physical systems, for, uh, for instance. So the question is, on a global level, has policy been slow, or is there a regulatory capture, and are there new issues that we need to take care of? I have a few minutes to, to deal, deal with um, these questions, and I will ask a few of the questions and also suggest a few answers. In my 
my view, in the U.S., the situation has been that there has been a privatization of public policy. There is a use of certain kinds of leverages because policy has been slow and it has been lax in certain areas that big firms have actually captured space and it is having global effects. The same you can say of countries like China where there is a different kind of industrial policy. So the first set of concerns for industrial policy is if you want to compete, where are you going to get growth from in the next 10 or 20 years? Is that going to be in the typical manufacturing services where Europe has had a strength? Or is it going to come from different kinds of sectors? What are going to be the future engines of growth and employment, right? And if it's going to be in the traditional sectors, fine. But you also need, I think, as somebody said before me, you also need to invest in new kinds of sectors. You need to invest, in my view, also in big firms and new firms. There is no choice. Industrial policy has to support every kind of industrial activity. The second, one, the second important question is, how will this growth be distributed? One thing you need to do to tackle the effects of inequality is really to make sure that growth gets distributed. Europe has always played a very good role in this. The question here is that there are some, um, some German scenarios which talk about when you have greater automatization, you can have either you know, uh, full automatization, great unemployment, or you can end up, in the best case, in a land of milk and honey. Okay? So my question is, how do you end up in this land of milk and honey? Because I think that the industrial policy has to play a huge role in eliminating these kinds of social inequalities that will come with this, this process. The third question I want to ask is, what is data and who owns it? The GDPR has already done big strides in this, in this, uh, in this uh, area, but I think there's a lot that needs to be unpacked in the data situation. For instance, is it information or is it knowledge? If it's just information, then who's creating it? And why do some companies get to hoard it? And if some companies get to hoard it, regardless of what's happening in your local situation within the unified digital market in Europe, there will be competitive advantages that will get lost at the global level, which is the reason why it's really important to reopen these issues in the WTO and to get some consensus on it. Then the other question is how to make Europe a clean key player in artificial intelligence debates. In the US, for instance, the debate on artificial intelligence is completely fixated on how do you make artificial intelligence ethical? The reason why this discussion is fixed, fixated on that is because then companies come and say, we are going to make it ethical by design. We are going to do it in the design process. Policy should not interfere. But actually, policy has a big role to play, because if a large number of AI is being used with, with big data sets that are being accumulated by these large firms, and then they're being sold, and that's a black box, what happens within machine learning, that needs to be unpacked. And I think industrial policy in Europe can set a key role in this. And the last slide I have, which is about, so you see, in the US, there is a lot of evidence which shows that platformerization leads to industry concentration, but very little activity that goes on to regulate that, right? And I think that in the case of Europe, I think this is a very important thing. These winner-take-all trends that everybody's talked about, it is certainly associated with network effects of new technologies. And I think here the question is not just competition, it's about public welfare. It's about data stewardship, data governance, having an alternate model of data governance, actually, where there's a different kind of stewardship. I haven't 
had a lot of time to go into detail into many of these, and some of the things that I've thrown out there might sound like keywords to you, but I look forward to discussing at great length what, what this really means during the course of the day. Yep. So thank you. Thank you, Padmashri. No, definitely you've contributed uh, again with the very uh, important uh, issues here. Again, putting data uh, at the forefront uh, here, uh, explaining winner-take-all, uh, but then also discussing uh, what kind of policy instruments do we need in terms of regulation, GDPR, and competition policy uh, here. So definitely important issues we're, we're currently discuss discussing in the EU, but uh, we will have uh, on our plate for today here. Uh, we have um, time now for opening the discussion for the floor. But before I give the, the, the um, uh, room to the floor, I would like to give an opportunity to our panel members if they would want to respond to, to each other's interventions already, or do you wait for the questions uh, here? No, OK. So then we, we go immediately to, uh, to the floor uh, here. So we have a question there and there. And Hello, good morning, everyone. My name is Andrea Glorioso with Enico uh, from the European Commission, but my comment and question is purely personal. Um, I'd like to go back uh, and hear the panel's perspective uh, on one point that has been raised a couple of times, which is about social policy. And specifically from an angle of how do we explain all of this uh, once we reach an agreement on the kind of industrial policy that we want for Europe. How do we explain to citizens, to our citizens, what's in it for them? The OECD published yesterday a very wide-ranging survey all across OECD countries. Uh, it was about the perception of citizens about what governments are doing for them. Three quarters of uh, OECD country citizens believe that governments, not the EU, governments, national governments should do more to protect their economic and social, uh, uh, to, to, to do more for economic and social protection. <coughs> so my question uh, to the panel is, how do you explain all of this? Terms such as competitiveness, R&D intensity, are very abstract to people unless you can explain to them that it will make their life better. Thank you. I propose we collect a number of questions before we go back to the panel, so we're in there. Thomas Jorgensen from the European University Association. Uh, two, two comments to the two first speakers. First, on the brain drain. I mean, universities are, of course, hugely exposed to brain drain, but we do not see a lot of skilled people, except for certain sectors, leave Europe. I mean, we're, we're pretty okay. Intra-European brain drain is an issue, but, but to US and China, it's, it's, not, it's not a disaster. What I would more worry about on the skills part is that much of what we see is in, in certain European countries, you cannot modernize, or it's very difficult to modernize your study programs, to focus on these interdisciplinary teams and this pro problem-based learning that is where you get the, the overall exposure to digital, to digital technology. So you have these, uh, th that I would see as a much bigger issue for skills than brain drain. Um, and the other thing to uh, Philippe Bastien-Boucher um, about the, the giants, we just did a study which is qualitative, it's nine in-depth case studies, but nevertheless, we interviewed, what, 170 persons about, about innovation ecosystems. And much of this story was indeed the story of the fall of the giants. So you go to the Netherlands and you have the story of the fall of Philips that uh, just dominated the region and then said, okay, doesn't work, we move to a much more open innovation model, we take our old, old uh, laboratories and we made them into a science park. 
And you had the same story several places. Uh, Finland was another, the, the, the Helsinki region was another with Nokia, another example. And their narrative, and it's of course not something that we checked, but their narrative is we're more resilient now with many more small agile companies and a big startup scene than we were when everything was Philips and everything was Nokia. So that would, in a very qualitative way, but that would confirm what, what you were saying. Yeah. So we have a question there. Here. Uh, thank you for your presentation. My name is Moni. I'm an economic analyst and uh, expert in uh, economic governance, European economic governance. Um, three questions. One, uh, the first one is uh, on industrial policies, European industrial policies. Uh, you have uh, quite clearly illustrated that uh, the uh, digital um, uh, industry in, in Europe is made up by small SMEs, very fragmented environment, very fragile. And 90% uh, of them are uh, publicly subsidized. So they, they operate in a kind of protected market. My question there is uh, how the European multinational corporations, big companies, can do uh, what they can do in order to uh, support the development of small SMEs as subcontractors or uh, anyway as, uh, as providers of services to the big European MEs. So what is the relationship between uh, MEs and SMEs in the field of digital? <coughs> the second question is on skills. In Europe, we don't have digital skills enough. We don't even have internet skills enough. Uh, you have uh, an incredible number of uh, uh, jobs which are not covered. Now, at the European level, can we envisage uh, in the framework of European budget some specific actions in order to support the formulation, the formation of skills in the field of digital. A digital Erasmus, a digital Marie Curie, a digital, uh, um, uh, digital uh, um, universities or research centers or whatever in the framework of this creative industry initiative at the European level. This is the second question. A third question that has not been, uh, uh, an issue that has not been mentioned here, are the technical standards and the compatibility of uh, technical norms. Uh, are we sure that we have a completed uh, a digital single market in this respect? I mean, are uh, digital uh, technical standards used in Finland compatible with uh, the ones used in, used in Portugal or in Spain or uh, in Greece? I'm not entirely sure that we are over there. So what we can do in order to increase uh, and improve uh, technical uh, standards and compatibility of, of norms. Yeah. Okay, so I think we have already quite a lot of uh, important questions here, so let's go to the panel in the first round here. So the one on, on social policy, uh, what should be the aim of industrial policy, competitiveness, or also other social dimensions, I guess that's uh, for you, Martin, <laughs> to answer. Well, I think it's a, it's a, um, you're right to put that question on the table. Um, uh, I think we must see the, we, we must consider the, the, the digital, digitization of our economy as a, as a transition. It's a societal transition. So there's more to it than that, than just on the industrial side. There's also societal change there, societal transition. And uh, it's important that we take, uh, not just the economy, but also society towards or through that transition. And that, that's uh, a much bigger story than just about R&D or competition policy. That's also a story about skills, 
and it's also a story about social policy. How can we actually take everybody on board, take everybody with us to watch this new uh, era of this new digital era? And uh, it also illustrates that it will take time. We can. It will not happen tomorrow. It will take a longer time uh, through generations. It's perhaps also related to the question of, of the fall of the giants uh, here and this whole creative destruction, also the destruction part, and how to manage that transition. But what do you think at the EU level we can actually do to uh, help support that transition? Uh, so we had, for instance, a globalization fund to address the challenges from globalization. Well, what's what's, imp what's important is that we, if, if, if giants fall, uh, and we do not talk today about giants that fall, but giants that can be created, that can evolve. No, no, no. But um, so if, uh, if, say, the old economy gets less important and we have less employment there, mm -hmm. then um, uh, the best thing for the people that are in these old industries is to be able to get to the new industries, mm -hmm. to the new employment. So the new employment has to be there. Mm -hmm. That's what today is about. Mm -hmm. uh, and that we uh, put them in a position, make it possible for them that they can make that transition. And that's where uh, skills, uh, training uh, is coming around. Um, and I think on the uh, more R&D side and the competition side, so the, the development of new industries, that's where, that's where at EU level there's a lot to do. I think the uh, skills side is very local. So it's, it's a transition that is maybe within a certain region where uh, where new industries are replacing old industries or employment is shifting, it's in that region where where uh, where this has to be taken up. Yeah. So if we have enough new activities created, the transition will be That's important. Smarter. Yeah. Yeah. So there was also the question of um, uh, SMEs and how in the value chain they can actually uh, also take up the new digital skills. Is that something you, Jan, would like to address? Sure, sure, sure happy to. And I'm I mean, to, to an extent, this is what is commonly happening. So there, there's a question on, on, on how much more there should be further, and I think there's all kinds of EU programs already to make sure there's common research programs about, uh, around large and small companies. But that's, for me, actually a point that reinforces the importance of some of those large companies. Uh, it seems we have a bit of a different view here, and that's, that's good. But the, uh, if, we, if we follow, for instance, innovation in many manufacturing sectors. And if you follow there what's what's happening to the tier one, tier two, tier two suppliers and so on, many of those companies that do innovate a lot. Right? And the innovation doesn't always come from the, from the big fish, uh, surely not black and white. But they innovate. You have all those players around Stuttgart and so on because they have the big fish next door. They know they have a certain tier of demand. They know they have the most demanding demand globally out there. They are not supplying to Bird, but in, in China or so, they're supplying to Porsche and Mercedes, so they know their own innovation will be cutting edge. And even if they're 200 persons strong only, they will have an office in China because Daimler is a factory in China. I'm actually not sure whether they do, but that, that, that's essentially the, 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 um, the dynamics that play out and that for me kind of reinforce some of the importance of large company. Notwithstanding there's issues, it's not all about large companies and so on. I think we, we don't disagree on any of that. But I think this, this is the one push um, where Europe needs to step up. And that, that's for me maybe just to come on also. You had this example there, Uber and Lyft and so on. It's actually quite quite interesting dynamic because the, 
this discussion about the importance of large companies, you showed they are still contestable. And I'm sure Uber feels the breathing in the neck every day from Lyft. Yeah. So I'm not so sure how much antitrust is an issue. There is an issue for yeah. sure, but I'm not sure it's the biggest issue there. It's still happening, the contestability. But neither of the two is in Europe. And had Uber started in London rather than in the Valley, they would probably have been eaten by Lyft within the first three months of operation, because my taxi app in Munich is probably also not quite at par. Yep. So I can also give you an example of SMEs in, in the car manufacturing, because it's indeed, they, they move along with uh, who sits on top of, the, of their value chain. Here, and the whole move towards electric cars, where the incumbents in Europe were much slower here, is also gets translated into the SMEs, which are very inactive on that uh, front too here. So in that respect, this is the whole value chain, actually, that has to, to be looked at uh, here. So there was also the question on, on brain drains and being able to attract uh, from abroad. There was an issue that, again, also you raised, uh, Jan. And apparently universities being a bit constrained by designing programs uh, sufficiently uh, modular to address the new demands for skills uh, here. Any comments from, and in general on, on digital skills and how to make sure we get uh, the right kind of digital skills, both from universities supplying this education sector, but also from uh, the corporate sector. Yeah, I think that somebody made this question of having these interdisciplinarity and, you know, the, the, the difficulties of having sticky university departments. And I think that's a very big issue, the sort of mobility and, and, and a different way of looking at research. Because now, I mean, working at Harvard or interacting with MIT and other areas where you, you see the same kind of discussion going on, I think the, the, the interdisciplinarity is, is very, very important. And, and having worked in Europe and in the US on the topic, I, I can speak to that. And I think there is a need to, to do that. The other thing is that I'm not so sure, though, that there is this extraordinary emphasis on STEM education, you know, the science, technology, engineering, mathematics. It's important, but I'm not really sure that Europe is lagging behind on that or just has to do something on it. But I think the only, the important thing is really the the interdisciplinarity. There's one more thing I want to speak about is that, uh, you know, the Japanese have this idea of Kaizen, you know, it's this, this vision of having a society which is entirely, uh, you know, digitally informed. So it's not about the, so the industrial policy is not just about creating greater R&D or getting rents, but it's really about transforming social policy and social advantages from the digital economy. So I think that's a good model to look at, you know, restructuring into, uh, industrial policy with a very strong social angle. Yeah. Okay. If you want to answer some other... Well, <laughs> um, on the skills, I mean, what I can do is I can just emphasize the importance of skills. So, um, Rhinelli has mentioned we've, we've carried out several surveys and so on to look, you know, what impact does digitalization actually have on and from firm performance and so on and, and clearly in line also with the rest um, it does have a big impact but what is interesting it it actually matters a lot or it varies a lot across firms 
um, the most obvious thing is when it comes to the adoption per se, right? So uh, firm science is, is, is a tremendous factor, and this also feeds in some of the skeptical remarks we've heard already, small is not necessarily beautiful. Um, we have fantastic small firms, and they're extremely important that we foster them to the extent that they uh, provide uh, the contestability of markets, but small per se is not necessarily what gets you up the digital ladder. Um, and that is, of course, closely related to skills. So if you look at which ones are the firms that benefit the most from, from the adoption once they've gone to adopting digital technologies, you see that these are the ones that are actually excellently managed because, of course, digitalization is not just putting another robot in your, uh, in your, in your, in your you know, factory. It actually often means an, an entire reorganization of how you go about working. And to uh, pull that off, <laughs> um, um, you, you need to have the management that is able to communicate to the staff, which, by the way, leads to the question of the importance of social policy. I think one of the main things po policy has to do is to have to provide a counterweight to all the headlines that says, like, in, in, in 10 years, half of you are going to be unemployed, right, and useless. No, because the main advantage, of course, of digitalization is that it augments your skills and allows you to boost your productivity and it allows you vis-a-vis -vis your employer to hire for much higher wages, which are going to make you better off. And the fact that half of you is, is, is going to be employed is based on... <laughs> I mean, who knows what's going to be the future, right? But at least they have to make a, a, a hell of a lot of assumptions to get to that point. And I, I think policy also has a responsibility to, to take a bit of a counterbalancing um, perspective on this, as much as I agree that um, um, you know, we have to take care of the losers, which um, Nolan's volans will, will, will appear. So skills is really important. And, and the only thing I would like to raise in this context is, of course, also geographical dimension that we have haven't touched up on at all, which is just the east-west dimension in, in, in Europe, right? So I, I don't have a particular answer, but if you look at um, who is moving where in Europe, you have pretty much a one-way street. And you, if you look at who is moving from the east to the west, and to a lesser extent the south to the north, it's the most highly educated people. So putting the two elements together that what you need for successful digitalization is skills, and at the same time having these massive labor streams um, in, in pretty much one direction makes you wonder you know, what needs to be done and what can be done to help these parts of, of Europe not to fall behind uh, with respect to digitalization. Perhaps indeed on this skill dimension, this mobility of skills and, and really exploiting the internal market on this would be important. Since we started a little bit late, I think we still have room for one question, but it should be an important question. <laughs> so, okay, but we can have. <laughs> Yeah, James, James Watson, Business Europe. I wanted to come back to this discussion at the start, really, and particularly, you know, the, this sort of contrast between the first and the second speakers. I mean, you, you seem to be saying to, to kind of simplify your story, seem to be, well, we have these US companies uh, with large valuations. We don't need to worry about that too much because they're simply earning excess profits because we've got poor US antitrust laws. That was a little bit what I, what I took from the story. Um, 
I mean, I was interested what, what we heard from, 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 from the last speaker there, and you said in particular, the valuation and capture, I think, of economic rents is not geographically constrained. And if we look at those top five countries, they are the companies, they're Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Facebook. And then you look at, you know, we look at EU profits and we see that, yes, we don't have that huge difference in profits. I mean, is it, is it not simply the story here, the first story essentially, that we have not captured, we are not getting those large global companies in the US, in the, in the EU, that are able to capture global rents. And we need to get those global rents and high wages into the EU. Is, is, is that, you know, that's the argument here. And I, I'm not convinced, let's say. So that, that's my question essentially. Yeah. Okay, so we have... And then we stop. My name is Joost van Eersel. Um, I have a question on the white elephant in the room, which is uh, finances and banking. I was very glad what you said, Mr. Brucher, about the banks. Uh, you said that uh, the biggest uh, banks in Europe are one-tenth of J.P. Morgan, and it continues. There's a concentration of... Uh, funding in the United States, it is one deep capital market. Europe has none. When you look at the disastrous discussion in Germany about Commerz and uh, Deutsche, you think that you are living in the 19th century. It is absolutely idiot. Okay, what is the impact in your view, Mr. Sampat, Mr. Kimes, Mr. Mischke, about the uh, impact of the lack of a capital market uh, in Europe on the development that is taking place and how can we overcome the national ties between the banks and, uh, uh, and the national uh, yep. politics. Thank you. Yeah, so indeed access to finance usually uh, mentioned when we're talking about startup and scale-up as one of the big uh, problems, uh, particularly in Europe here. Does it also hold for uh, the, the, the digital sector or the digital using sectors as well? It was indeed strange that we didn't mention it, so is it, does it mean it's less of an issue or is it still? So, um, yeah, actually, I'm really happy that you raised this question because I completely disagree with Philip on that point. So, um, so you see, for me, industrial policy's role has to be to strengthen the capacity of your firms to compete globally. And so EU's industrial policy has to do that for the European firms. The reason why I put up those four models of innovation is that Yes, Uber and Lyft would not have succeeded in London or Paris. I totally agree with Jan there. But the problem is that Uber has succeeded in the US. And the problem is that Uber has successfully gone on to introduce Uber in a large number of developing countries, where Uber has eliminated local businesses. And Uber is capitalizing on these markets and making huge profits. The same thing happens when you take the top five firms. What is happening is not that there is a lax competition policy in the US. I do not buy that. There is a discussion on better competition policy in the US, but there is also a very clear understanding that these firms represent actually a global domination model for the US, and these firms, they need to be kept the way they are, or the firms, they need to be guarded because they, they imply actually US dominance. And the same thing is happening. In fact, go down from the top five to the top 10 or top 15. You have the top five and later are the US 
US, and then you have the Chinese firms, right? Now, the question is that Europe has typically been strong in manufacturing. And that's why, as Jan said, if you go to Germany, you have the Mittelstand, you have these small and medium enterprises, which are highly innovative, and they're producing for the large-scale manufacturing firms, right? But at the same time, there is a new kind of large firms that have emerged, which are not manufacturing intensive, and that's where Europe is losing ground. And so if you want to recapture the ground, one thing is clearly to change the business model in manufacturing, help these small firms bridge the gap, and so on, which somebody asked. But you also need to focus on these new kinds of firms that are coming up and what Europe can do to bridge that gap. So that's my first answer. The second one, there comes the capital market question, which is a highly relevant question. And that's because when you're not talking about traditional manufacturing sectors where Europe has the stronghold, what kind of new kinds of innovation are we talking about? And what is the role of banks and capital markets in making that kind of innovation emerge? And I think there is where industrial policy has to emerge. I think industrial policy has to get agile. It has to get a bit more creative and say, OK, there are other kinds of innovation that become important that can actually sort of cross-subsidize, actually cross-subsidize manufacturing, you know, and the gains from manufacturing. And how are we going to restructure our capital markets to provide financing for that? So I think that's a question that we haven't spoken about. And these things link back very strongly to skills building and training and so on. But really, the question is, how are we going to restructure this innovation? So how does Europe capture that ground globally is, is for me, what is really crucial here. On the first question, I would like to go, to go back to Jan here because on your slides you also mentioned so big tech. It's basically it's it's not uh, EU here, but perhaps with um, right kind of policy by attracting them here, we could still try to capture as much value as possible within Europe from the non-EU uh, big tech here, here. Could you elaborate a bit on that? Because that's also the non-geographic. Yeah, yeah, and, and thanks for, first for your comment, also for the global value capture. It's for instance, when you mentioned your point on the declining labor share, we see, for instance, labor share declines in Germany and automotive to good uh, extent linking to the profits German automotive companies make in China. So I think that's just kind of one anecdote that, that confirms some of that. Um, now, on getting the, the, the global digital giants to operate more in Europe, the good news is a lot of that is happening. Google does have a campus in Zurich and Berlin and Warsaw and so on. So it's it's happening because they have to go wherever the skills are. And as we heard from gentlemen, there actually Europe does have a, a lot of good skills. Um, but can we do more to to make that happen? Well, I guess we have a tendency to actually de deter them huh, by having all those debates on taxation, on regulation, on kicking out Uber in half of our cities and all those things. And I'm wondering whether we need a shift in mindset to embrace them and say, well, those are kind of companies operating in sectors where we essentially have lost the battle. So bring them here. Okay, so now I think we've used up uh, all of our time here, and we have a very uh, interesting uh, following policy discussions uh, here. I think we answered the questions on, on, on 
do we need an industrial policy? I think everybody agrees on that. Uh, but also, I think we've, we've contributed elements on how that industrial policy should actually look like. And I think a major asset of your being big is the single market uh, here. So that holds both in digital as well as in non-digital markets. Uh, if we want to, to, to take out all the advantages of digitization and data, it has to be because we are a single market uh, here. And trying to, to push that further is one of the most important uh, elements uh, here. So thanks for your attention. Time for coffee now, and uh, the next uh, policy discussion will be on competition policy, which we already addressed. Thank you. Thanks for the panel.